Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, a glassblower. Join us as we explore the topics that affect the lives and livelihoods of art show artists. Independent Artist Podcast is back on the air, and joining me today is a brand new and improved character, straight in from the Windy City, Will Armstrong. <laughs> I can't <laughs> promise there's a new character, Douglas. <laughs> I, uh, I'm having, a, I'm a little run down. I had my booster just the other day, and and uh, my COVID booster, and, and I, man, I've been having a fever for the last like day and a half. Jesus, so, what did they just inject you right with a little Omicron with that booster? Well, they what? cut up a line for some reason, and I did that, and I wasn't sure if that was exactly how I was supposed to it, but the guy promised it was COVID vaccine <laughs> boost, so I did that, and and uh, we'll see. I don't know. I'm feeling strong. You know what you're alluding to is one of the funnier things that's happened to me because of the podcast. Uh, somebody stopped by the booth, an artist that I'd never met before. To let me know uh, two things, and one of them I have not told you yet, which I think you're going to get a kick out of. All right, I can't wait to uh, hear that. Yeah, one of them was the fact that they don't like the character that I play on the podcast. They think I'm a little mean. Well, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'll have to edit that a little bit better, do a little bit better writing, give you some better scripts. <laughs> My scripts are shit, Douglas. You always give me the mean parts. And the uh, the other one, which I thought I'd spring on you during the podcast, is they prefer it if you don't use so many curse words. Have I become the potty mouth around here? Well, they said that I, you know, I just kind of sound like an asshole. But you, it sounds like I'm influencing you with my bad language. And I, I, I think they're not too impressed with that, Douglas. And it's possible, Will, because at Thanksgiving this year, with lots of little children around, I kept catching myself dropping the F-bomb. <laughs> And I thought, man, this podcast thing is really uh, affecting my uh, my use of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see it. I see it happening. Uh, you and I both are have have some expressions that I've seen cross pollinating into our interviews too, which is kind of funny. So um, I noticed you dropping a couple of right ons here with this uh, Helen interview. I'm like, that's what I say. <laughs> no, it's good. <laughs> You're hearing stuff. yourself. Sometimes, right? sometimes I do. Great talk with Helen this week coming Thanks. up here on the pod. So yeah, I'm excited a... for everybody to hear that in a few minutes. Cool. Yeah, that was fun. It was a good talk. So yeah. Well, tell me all about one of a kind. Tell us, tell us what happened, what it was like for you this week. Um, the Optimus Prime variant that came on. Uh, right Optimus the Prime. Show. Yeah, whatever the hell they call it. I don't know what the. the uh, you know what I call it? I call it. <laughs> tell me. Omegon because of uh, Garrison Keeler, who I have come in contact with a few times here, being in the St. Paul area. Oh, have you really? Of, yeah, I've waited on him when back in my fine dining server days. He was one of my regular customers i knew that he preferred the arctic char whenever it was on the menu <laughs> i was doing the river art show in memphis when garrison keeler was in town doing the lake wobegon days oh, and cool. yeah sue abbott and her wife jill lynch were at the bar having a cocktail and garrison keeler hit on jill so <laughs> that was kind of cool so a uh, little little brush with fame apparently he was being kind of a creep but um you know that if you know the history of garrison keeler now it it it, it seems appropriate it does seem appropriate <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> you know, it was interesting and really rewarding to talk to all of the different artists that I had not met uh, that are listening to the podcast. Awesome. So uh, sh- a shout out to those folks and, and thanks for tuning in week to week. And, and it makes what we do pretty rewarding. Sometimes I feel like we do this in a box, but y- you start to reach out. I know and, uh, it's interesting because... You know, we are staring at each other through Zoom, and, you know, you're looking at me in my my daughter's former bedroom, now turned podcast office, and, you know, we're, this is no big production. This is just two artist guys sitting at the end of a microphone having a chat every couple of weeks. Absolutely. It's pretty cool uh, to see the the outreach. I heard from another another artist who also was saying that they had a friend that were like, yeah, they think that, that Will's mean. So I got two, Will is mean. Oh, <laughs> they a, like me better. Like this, this kind of brings <laughs> me to the next topic I wanted to talk about. She actually interrupted me while I was talking to some customers and I was making a sale oh. and she came into my booth and said, you know, I don't like the character that you play on the podcast. And uh, I just, you know, I had like three or four people. It was like two couples. One was buying and the other couple was with them. And I just said, well, I got news for you, honey. You're not going to like the real thing either. <laughs> she she kind of left with her tail between her legs. But my, my customers liked it. I but, think um, with both of us, it's a little bit of what you see, what you get, you know. There's uh, no, no put on. We wear it on our sleeve, my friend. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, that does bring me to etiquette, uh, art show etiquette. And if there are, this never really has to be said, but for people out there, you never, ever walk into somebody's booth while they're making a sale and say something else. Yeah. You know, there are certain things like unwritten rules. Uh, well, I'm writing it down right now. If you walk into my booth while I'm making a sale and interrupt uh, something, uh, you're really not going to like the character that I play. Yeah. But I enjoy hearing about uh, people's thoughts on the podcast, and I enjoy people kind of interacting with it, too. So if you have a question or something you want to ask Douglas or myself or have us talk about, please engage on Facebook at our Independent Artist Podcast page. Yeah. Okay, so I can tell you uh, my experience of getting distracted at, at one of a kind, and it's kind of a good thing, and I don't want it to sound uh ungrateful but we were used once in their publicity uh we were part of one of their marketing campaigns mm-hmm. and basically sigworth glass was on the shopping bags in the elevators on the billboards or whatever so awesome. that was awesome that was really good for us but as is the case sometimes with awards or sometimes with that really great publicity it can turn into a lot of folks who see your stuff want to walk in and and talk about the details around that and then they want to exit and leave and so you are left unable to engage with the people who really want to buy your work and it's hard to know who that person is standing in your booth looking versus the one who's talking to you who do you like jump ship and give your attention to in those moments right that's where i'm sure it helps having renee uh be be the other lead with totally. that. So one of you guys can take take the lead on that. You know, I, I had a similar experience because I've done the poster for several shows mm-hmm. and having people come in and it's it's not that it's distracting as much as it is a completely different conversation than I'm used to having. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can jump into my, my spiel and yeah. I can say my spiel, but it's like, oh, well, I got to have a different spiel for this one. I have to just be 
gracious and be like, oh, well, thank you for supporting the show as opposed to you know, if, like somebody comes in because a lot of times you're the poster artist and you're the poster artist for a show that doesn't allow reproduction. So the only reproduction that's being allowed to be sold is yours and you're not getting the money for it. Yeah. Cause they can buy the poster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like if they come in and they're like, they bought the framed print and things. I mean, you can't blow it and be like, well, I didn't get any money for it. You've got to be like, Hey, thanks for supporting the show. It's like, we've said again and again, Sometimes you're there for the show, and yeah. some, sometimes the show is there for you. The people that were lined up waiting to see me because I did the poster to see the original work far outweigh the uh, distraction of people coming by to tell me they bought the print. So yeah. it's it's a it's, it's always, a symbiotic relationship for sure. It is. I had a couple of really big days at one of a kind, and a couple of dud days. And mm-hmm. you were like, you texted me my own words back uh, about. Yeah, you're like, well, sometimes you're there for the show, and sometimes the show's there for you. Yeah. And my my react, I was like, fuck you, don't give me words back. I don't want to hear that. I'm having <laughs> a bad day. I Sorry, wallow. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could have, I could have, like, um, I could have had a better use of my time if I were only here for the great days and not here for the slow days. You know. Yeah, I guess. So you have to stay focused though, because you're never quite sure. I did lose a sale because it was a dud day, and I walked away to walk the show. Uh. Just got. You know, but it happens. How do you know you lost it? Like you expected them to come back and they, they didn't see them? Well, you think they uh, came? They were the an booth. online uh, customer and she oh. texted me that she stopped by a couple of times. And I'm oh. like, had to pull myself away to go re-up for the following year. It's one of those shows that, that allows you to do that. It's, That's uh, the really hard thing about doing these shows solo. You know, I mean, Renee and I have been able to find our groove since our children are old enough that we don't need to sit and babysit them all the time. And mm-hmm. so when I used to go off and do the shows alone, I had those moments where even a bathroom break or whatever, any kind of a break that you need to do what needs to be done, you can't run to the van and grab something without leaving your booth unattended. So, you right. know, it's hard. Your business model is is completely different than mine, I would say, because you, you rely on chipping away at the stone of your goal, you know, mm-hmm. like you're you're making these smaller sales and then you yeah. have the, the bigger bumps to you know, you'll have you'll have a bigger sale, but you'll have these big bumps that get you to where you want to be. Whereas I feel like I'm uh, people are going to be in my booth engaging for five, ten minutes. So if I hit the you know, it drives my wife, the jeweler crazy mm-hmm. because, you know, I'll be <laughs> I remember setting up across the street in Des Moines from her and I was in next door to Anthony Hansen. And, and Anthony is just a, he's just a, a beautiful guy. He's just such a cool a gentle soul and i'm sitting there just really enjoying hanging out with him and, and talking and we're sitting there just yucking it up she said and we're like god you guys just you yuck it up and then you walk into your booth and you make a big sale and you walk back out on the street and you just yuck it up again for another hour or two it's all so, about yucks <laughs> i mean it's just a different model you know yeah. i'm not i'm not chipping away at the stone i'm set up for um a good show with just a few sales so yeah yeah, I mean, we did over the years evolve into having collections in our booth, and we can we get those moments where we might have a two to five thousand dollar sale, which really turns things around. But yeah, I'd say yeah. a lot of the times it's a five hundred dollar at a time sale, and to yeah. some artists, you know, even that seems, you know, like a bigger chunk than just chipping away at let's say a hundred and fifty dollar sale or two hundred dollar sure. sale to get to your end goal. Definitely, I have to say, for us being back in the studio this week this past two weeks since the last episode has been just nice. I mean, to get up every day and to just focus on the work 
And, you know, because of that little unfortunate incident with having to buy a van, I decided to launch another little website sale so we could have some um, revenue come in. And it's mm-hmm. just so nice to every, you know, so often have my phone beep and say, oh, look, another another order. I'm not even at a show anywhere. I get to make work in my studio and still have some revenue come in. So that's been a nice treat after this crazy hamster wheel that we've been on since since July. The invoice program that I use uh, gives me a notification with a cha-ching after my people have paid the invoice. I love that. That's me, too. It's the old-fashioned cash register. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) So, hey, uh, I wanted to jump back into last week because we recorded the preamble before we heard the interview. So we didn't get to talk about our reactions to Dylan And I thought his uh, conversation brought up a really good point that a lot of artists struggle with, and that's the idea of the role that academia plays in us being roadshow artists, kind of being a little bit, you know, diametrically opposed to each other. Right. And I've mentioned some of that before in the past about how academia, uh, this is going to make some people mad and I don't care. Uh, Academia a lot of times is... It's like the old adage of those who can do and those who can't teach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's kind of unfair um, because I think they do. But I think the people that teach have the ability to, um, you know, they're getting paid. They're getting a paycheck. They don't need to have the grind of actually creating work that sells in order to keep food on the table. Mm-hmm. So they can create whatever artwork that they want to do that's completely out there. So a lot of the people that that we as artists learn from are people who don't actually appreciate the fact that we're coming around to selling it. They only want, they believe in the gallery system, which they don't teach because they haven't been successful at it for themselves for the most part. Mm -hmm. Or they, they, they teach academia. It's like, well, I don't want to teach art. I want to actually make it. So how do I go about actually going through and selling it? So well, con- it's interesting. Yeah, conceptually, I mean, I get the the bigger point that comes into it is when you start getting money and making a living involved in any kind of industry, it somehow seems to turn it. And it seems like the the thing that we struggle with as artists is making the good work and then making the good work that sells. And so that's I really loved hearing about your your topic about art fair gold and what right. seems to work on the street for well, for us. Yeah. I always look at it as a piece of pie. It's like, well, here's the work that I'm able to do. You know, mm-hmm. here's the work that I can actually do within that same piece of pie is here's the work that I'm able to do that I that sells. Mm-hmm. And then within that piece of pie is here's the work that I'm able to do that sells that I enjoy creating that inspires me so i have to make sure that i'm inspired a lot of times and then i have to make or pretty much for my business Mm -hmm. i have to make sure that i'm inspired because people can smell the uh the 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 desperation or the um if somebody like if i just turned around people out in the art show world do beautiful paintings of trees okay Mm -hmm. they do they they base their entire business sometimes you'll see painters that paint trees yeah. and so and that totally works for them and you can feel the passion that they have for nature and what they're doing if i tried to go in and paint a tree you'd see how soulless and dead it was mm-hmm. it's like well yeah i i can paint a tree 
But the fact that it, it doesn't exist within that piece of pie of what I'm inspired by right. and what I'm inspired by that actually sells. So Right. And that what is reflected in your work from the inspiration that drives you is part of the marketability of it. So if it is soulless, it's just going to sit there and not connect with, with its end game buyer. Right. And I've definitely tried to do some things just to sell them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are the pieces that sit around in my booth for for a long time. Yeah. Or I don't even want to show. Yeah. Well, my experience with academia is with that point that Dylan is specifically, and you and Michael talked about at one point, is wasn't so much in, in my, my training as a glassblower. I would say that, first of all, my, my teacher... I had a few different teachers along the way, but the one who was the bulk of my training, um, he's a roadshow artist, and he was, you know, very giving of information about this kind of life as well. Um, but where I've struggled was in, you know, in theater. I felt like there was a lot of those highbrow talks of what's good, what's not good, and in mm. sometimes these conversations about what is important work or what is good work. It's all just so that the person who's speaking can feel good about what they're saying or they've somehow assigned some sense of deeper meaning to it. And it's all external and it doesn't really come from the artist themselves. It's all what's being kind of put upon them. Right. And if anything about being in that sort of a situation as a creator, I learned to have a thick skin and to not take this bigger, broader kind of talk being implied onto my work to, to, to like stop me from creating or to send me in a direction that doesn't feel authentic. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that uh, it seems like the, the artists that went to school and learned a craft, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was Michael Schwegman talking about uh, ceramics or you talking about glass, um, it's a different kind of academia than it is talking to somebody that's creating 2D. Uh-huh. Now, granted, I, I went to school with a communication arts and design degree, so I was I was headed on an illustration track. Yeah. But whereas you've got Dylan and Helen, they're on more of the academic, headier art tracked with the fine art uh degree and that's where you get into um kind of butting heads about about doing festivals or or doing art shows i think because it they do make you sometimes in that kind of academia feel feel guilty about uh, your pursuit like a sellout like a you're just making it to sell it well yeah yeah (laughs) yeah well (laughs) exactly and i wonder if it's the same and different um you know where you have a higher brow festivals you know where yeah. you have some of the you know your gasparillas or your um uh, cherry creeks some, or smithsonian some of or philadelphia yeah. craft those i mean from my craft you know um school schooling you know those kinds of of shows where it's more sculptural and and craft based yeah where they're not necessarily looking down their nose at what we are doing but um, I, I take umbrage with that. I get I get kind of hot uh, on that topic. I, as far as like you know, any kind of topic that gets in the way of me selling my own work or or somebody taking an attitude about it. Mm-hmm. And then Always. you know, this kind of makes me um, want to transition here into what Helen and I talked about, which is okay. So as roadshow artists, we have a strong connection to what we make, but that's a component of who we are, and really the avenue that we've all taken for selling 
is also a component of who we are. So a mm -hmm. lot of us out there on the road are looking for this life where we are upfront and personal with our work, direct interaction with other artists, and direct interaction with the people owning our work, and that's why we do this. Absolutely, it's exactly, and and you know, and what we do for a living is all about that personal connection too. And we don't want to buy work from people that we don't connect with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I try really hard if I'm in a bad mood to just kind of shake it out and be like, you know, just focus on being likable and open and connected to the clients because that's why they're there that's why they're there at those particular shows and not buying from a gallery uh they want to meet us you know they do. so they do yeah i like that aspect and i love your talk with with helen and it's interesting um what she talks about about going into she's she's fresh off of a trip to miami for art basil and and it's 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 a great talk it's a it's a comforting kind of interesting talk about art so let's get right into it Let's jump into Helen Gottlieb. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap, the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. You know, Will, I started applying last week for next season's art shows, yeah. and I just really love that with Zapplication, we can categorize our shows by favorites, and then I can go in and sort those favorites by application deadline, so I never miss an application to one of my favorite shows. It's true. It has lots of different options, lots of different add-ons and tags that we can use. And I never seem to have enough time. I mean, I just got home from the Pearl. I got to get back in the studio, get pieces made, and then there's applications coming due. I'm so busy with all of the other hats that I wear to go on to other websites to apply to shows. To be honest, I don't even do it. I only go to Zap. Yeah. And basically, if I don't have to think about it, then I'm a happy man. Today's guest on the podcast is Helen Gottlieb who lives in Dexter, Michigan, just outside of Ann Arbor. Helen got her start in pen and ink drawings, but when she was first exposed to printmaking, that set her on the course to where she is today. Her work is deeply textured, whether it's the printmaking works on paper or the mixed media pieces mounted onto wood. We are really happy she could join us here today on the show, and I look forward to her talk. Hey, Helen, welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast. Thank you for having me. We had a little dose of Dylan last week, so now we get to hear hear from you. Hopefully I can be as entertaining and interesting as him. <laughs> well, we mentioned on last week's preamble that both Will and I, you know, we compare notes. We say, hey, I really want to talk to this person. And one week I said, hey, I really want to talk to Helen. It was right after I saw you in Sun Valley and had a chance to chat with you. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's funny, because I really want to talk to Dylan. So we've been planning <laughs> this one-two punch since about, I don't know, August. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. So, well, first thing I want to talk about is you just came back from an exciting trip. Yeah, we just got back from uh, Art Basel, uh, Art Week in Miami. Um, we were down there for five days just checking mm -hmm. out. We got to see um, the main show, Untitled, Scope, Nada, Miami Inc., I mean, it's so funny because when we, we've been going like, the last three times it happened uh, with our good friends, Rick and Lisa Loudermilk, who I'm not sure if you know them, but they also do the show mm -hmm. circuit. Cool. And uh, they have been going for like 15 years. Anyway, we so they were so excited about it and they got us into going. And, and you know, every time you tell somebody, oh, I'm going to Miami when you're from Michigan, they're like, oh, 
how was the weather? Like, did you hang out on the beach? Did you have something? I'm like, no. It's all it's about not. the beach. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, the weather was perfect. I was inside looking at artwork for like eight hours a day every day. And like, that was, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously we walked on the beach in between shows, but there's, it's just so much work to see from all over the world. It's, uh, I feel like it's an incredible opportunity, you know, to, to be able to see that many different types of work, different, you know, galleries and everything all at once. So yeah. I wanted to like try and take it in uh, as much as we could when we were there. It's gotten a lot bigger from when it first kind of came on the scene because is Art Basel all of the events or is it its own show? No, it's its own show. So I guess like people kind of use that as like a blanket, like Art Basel. Um, mm -hmm. um, but that show happens in the convention center there. And then all these other uh, shows are like their offshoot shows, which are also some of them uh, very high quality, but but kind of focused on different things. And, and Art Basel has a lot of the secondary market and, and really contemporary artists. It's like a mix, you know? Mm. And whereas like some of these other shows are like only new artists, only work that's been being seen for the very first time, really fresh. Mm. Um, so yeah. to me, some of the other shows outside of Art Basel are actually more interesting. Because it's like what's coming next kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and are all of these shows basically like it's gallery representation artists it is but i'm gonna say that there's definitely like some gray area i feel like there's um you know sometimes i'll go in there and it's it's strictly supposed to be galleries only but sometimes you'll see like a cooperative or mm. a self-representing artist that has like made their um maybe a gallery out of their last name you know mm -hmm. like if i was like gottlieb gallery or something like that um and and like their work is the only one there uh most i would say for the most part it's it's uh it's mostly galleries you know showing showing multiple artists and every once in a while giving an artist a solo show i know there are a lot of shows around the city during that time that are trying to profit off of the the art buyers coming in to miami that week and some artists have signed up for shows representing themselves with high booth fees and it, it's a big risk so everyone should really look into this before they before they jump into just any show although maybe some artists have good experiences there those shows felt really to me like the show organizers are like taking advantage of the artists it, it didn't feel like you walk in there and it's just like you see artists and you can tell by the look on their face they're like please talk to me you know like i spent ten thousand dollars on this booth or something and it just felt it feels a little bit desperate in some of those other shows to Didn't me because get quite the traffic flow yeah i mean like there's some traffic flow but i don't know like there's so many other shows that are like higher end that i remember one the one year we went there was this um artist that came all the way from china and she had these amazing ink portraits that were just gorgeous and it was just like i'm thinking what are you doing here you know compared mm -hmm. to you need to be at one of these other shows but she hadn't been discovered by any of the other galleries that were mm -hmm. you know going to be at the at the bigger shows so she kind of and i mean i understand even from my own feeling going there rick and lisa had been so many years and and at the first year rick was just like okay this is going to be awesome, but I just need to tell you, like, don't let Art Basel psych you out. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, don't see something and feel like you need to change everything you're making or figure oh. out, like, how to, like, hurry up and, like, show there. Just go into the experience, like, totally open-minded and just, like, see everything. And it's really hard to do that because, of course, you want to say, like, oh, I want to be showing here, too. Like, how can I get in here? And, 
you know, it could be a head trip. I mean, there's so many things that can come along that can totally make us reinvent our wheel. Yeah. But then there are good things to take from it. But I I get their advice of saying, you know, (laughs) don't throw it all out and start from scratch here. (laughs) You're doing something right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, And then, oh, this year he was so funny. He said something like, now that I've seen what I've seen, like, anything goes or anything goes on the table or something to that effect, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, just it's it's a free for all or whatever. So, well, I will say, um, um, because I think this is a good conversation to have that we don't have some of our artist friends or newbies put themselves in situations that are risky financially, you know what I mean? Get themselves in trouble. But I do think that some of these sculpture guys who we see on the street who make really high-end work, I know that they did really well at the show and, you know, they know what they're doing. So it's really something to research and kind of get. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't want to be like throwing a negative spin on that. There's so many shows that even if you're there for like an entire week, unless you're I mean, I like to look at things pretty closely. So, and also like a lot of these places, they have like the way the booths are set up. Often there's like a closet where they like hang all the small pieces. So it's like, you really have to like look around to make sure you don't miss anything. And then even within that every day they're selling work and they're putting out new work. So like, unless you were at one show every single day, you're not going to see everything that is shown during the Miami art week, which Mm -hmm. is kind of cool and exciting. But, um, but at the same time, if you want to go to like the main big shows, there's not time to go to those small shows. You know, mm-hmm. if you're, and, and I think about that as like being a buyer to, you know, if I was a buyer too, mm-hmm. like looking to spend money, I mean, maybe people are looking to discover some artists there and, and hopefully some artists are doing well. And I think overall this year, in my experience, I mean, on the street anyway, and, and at some galleries, like things have been really good this year. Cool. Well, I'm glad you didn't go and decide to reinvent the wheel because you're doing a lot of things right based on some of these awards you've been getting lately. You're on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We were like totally looking forward to getting back out doing the shows again at Winter Park this year, but we Mm -hmm. couldn't. So we were watching from home on social, the parade with the award winners. And for one, I was so excited that, you know, you won best in show, but then I had this thought in my head. I thought, wait a minute. Didn't, is this like, is this an old video or is it, was this two times in a row or what? It's kind of embarrassing. I'm embarrassing you. I know, but it's, it's well-deserved, but it's true, right? Wasn't the last show you were also best in show? Yeah, in 2019. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is just insane. That is so incredible. I'm so, so happy for you. Thank you. Well, what does that do to your head? I don't, it doesn't. Honestly, I'm like always in this weird competition like with myself and to me the awards don't really matter. I just want to like keep working and make my my work grows and I feel good about it. You know, it's great if I get acknowledged, but if I don't get acknowledged with awards, I don't really care as long as I can, you know, sell enough to keep having this life that I love. Does that put any added pressure on you like well, I got acknowledged for this show, now I need to continue at that level or I need to make something better or to constantly, you know what I mean? Is that, does that get in your head at all? No, no. I think that it's more about, I hope that every time I make work, you know, each new piece is better, but like, I think it's just like every group of work you hope gets better. And, you know, within that group, sometimes there's, there's ones that you feel like you really hit. And then other ones you're like, 
that is the one that's like taking me somewhere. You know, it's like my idea is I can feel it's leading somewhere, but I'm not quite there yet. But like all those pieces need to happen. It's like a journey. Mm. You know, it's it's like uh, being in a laboratory and just like, you know, putting things together and say, what if I do this? What's going to happen? And just this. And then like, oh, I like that out- outcome. Like I should use a little bit more of that and like move to this thing. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like you're really you're really deep in the process and the learning from the materials and the learning from the design and the external part of it does not play a role in your process. Yeah, most definitely. I'm, I'm more interested in, in the work. And, and like I said, if I get acknowledged with an award, great. If I don't, that's fine too. If you were to step outside of yourself and view it as an outsider, why do you think there has been this recognition? What about your work has changed that stands apart because it's not just getting, you know, like a, a a little nod. These are like best in categories and best in shows. These are like getting the top tier type awards at great shows. I think some of it has to do with like, you know, when you learn about artwork and, and you learn different techniques or process, a lot of people are like, I'm just doing painting. I'm just doing etching. I'm just mm-hmm. doing silkscreen. I'm just doing like, they just really stay like within this one little category or, uh-huh. or like even like in a section of a category. And what I'm trying to do with my more, more recent work is kind of turn it into this mixed media thing and say like, Oh, I like this thing that painting does. And I like this thing that printmaking does. And I like this thing that carving does. And I think that maybe I'm getting acknowledged or because the work is a little bit different because I'm like putting all these different techniques together. Oh, there's an integration of different Mm -hmm. things to create a a direction maybe that hasn't been seen. Yeah. And people get surprised. They're like, Oh, is that 3d? Is that carved? Wait, how do you do? Like, cause I think when people see 2d work, they just want to say like, Oh, that's a painting. And then they like look close and then they get kind of confused because they're like, wait, like in my booth, like most of the time, instead of even talking about what the artwork is about or what my uh, inspiration is, a lot of time I just, you know, talk about technique because mm-hmm. people don't know what they're looking at, which is fine. It's kind of good to just be able to engage with people and and uh, keep them, you know, interested. Interested. And just like learn more about artwork in general. This has taken me back to the talk that I had with Amber earlier this year where she said that people will walk by your booth and they will want to just kind of like sum up what you do in like a simple thought. Oh, that is just a this, or that's just, I'll use me as an example. If they walk by and they look at one of my vessels, they might say, oh, it's it's a vase, and then they can move on. But when there's something that goes a little deeper that makes them stop and say, this is different from just any other thing I've seen, that that is kind of what our job is as a roadshow artist anyway, is to make the public stop. Yeah, yeah, I would just spend a lot of time thinking about how um, how quickly people like walk through an art fair and then they just look at something and, and it's like they see it like within like, you know, a fraction of a second and and they make their decision up about something without looking closely. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if you don't have something bold or something that like draws people in to see your work, it's like they can make up their mind about something like so, I don't know, so fast. That or like almost like they... Maybe like they're looking for reasons to rule it out and just say, it's just this and I can keep walking. Yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think like also if you have like my work, even though 
like recently I've been working with scale and I think with scale, you know, there's something bold about scale, but I think like in general, my work is kind of more like quiet and calming and, and I try and focus on things that are more subtle. And so I think that, you know, when my work was smaller, it was easier for people to like not see it as much because mm. you have to, you had to like get up on it close to like see all the details and see all these things. And if somebody doesn't, isn't even willing to walk inside the booth sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, cause they're like in conversation with the person they're walking with, or maybe they're just like, Oh, I'm just gonna, you know, walk through this and rush through and, and see everything. And like, you know, see this whole show in an hour and you're like, wait, there's 200 booths in here. You can't see everything in an hour, you know? Yeah. Well, I will say that, the point you make about your work definitely resonates with me because just knowing of your work, being a printmaker, then when I came in your booth for the first time and saw your work in person and I saw all the textural components of the carving into the wood and then incorporating that with your printmaking and you started telling me about the process, it was fascinating to think about Typically, the sculptural component happens when you're building your plates, but then now you've incorporated that into the finished piece. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I was, I think about so much like, you know, when people come for um, studio visits or like uh, every once in a while when I'm having, I'm at a gallery opening, the gallery will be like, hey, can you bring like a couple of your plates, your blocks so people can see it and you can explain your process and it's easier for them to understand when they have like a visual element and, uh, mm -hmm. And so, and I always loved the way my wood blocks look. And I was just kind of like, why can't I just incorporate that into the piece and also have this like juxtaposition of like this carved texture along with a printed texture, even if it's not from the same block, but it kind of just like adds more depth and, and interest. And I'm really interested in process. And if that, that carving is in the piece, it also just helps tell a story about how something comes together. Yeah, so for people who might not know your work, um, let's talk a little bit about what we're describing. For years, I always showed, I did works on paper and they were always framed under glass. And that work was printmaking based and and a lot of pen and ink and, and gouache uh, drawings. And the newer work, it takes all those processes and then what I do is I take the paper and paste these pieces onto birch panels mm -hmm. uh, that, that Dylan builds for me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I can't do everything, guys. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so anyway, I paste the work onto the panels and then roll the, down. It's actually on these big pieces. It's kind of like it's a process where we really need two people because the um the the gloss mediums that we use to paste things down dries so fast that it's kind of like he'll be painting glue on one side I'll be painting glue on the other put it down and and like one of us is rolling and one of us is like wiping off the excess paste and then and then it's like on to the next one and then there's a day of drying for once all those pieces are pasted down and then I have to go in trim the piece varnish it and then I'll go back in and uh and sometimes carve elements like the sky and do gilding with gold and palladium leaf for some of the highlights. Mm -hmm. In general, a lot of printmaking, you're, you can only work as large as your press is. So you're limited by the size of the press. In my press, I can print something about two by three feet at the most. Okay. But I was thinking like, oh, I want to make these big pieces. Like I have an idea for a piece that's like eight feet by five and a half feet. Like how am I going to make that? And for a while, I was just obsessed with getting a big, a giant press. I'm like, how can I get a giant press? And like, right. is there enough room in the studio? This and that. And then I was just like, physically, like inking a plate that big is not fun. And it's it's like 
also takes multiple people. And, uh, and I was just thinking like, wait, why, why do I need a bigger press? Why can't I just do this in sections? Mm -hmm. So I just started basically getting like four by eight sheets of plywood and then cutting them into the max size or almost the max size that I can print on my press and starting my process from there. And so my individual plates are all like, you know, two by three feet. So do you, do you build those plates kind of putting them together in a big puzzle and then you make your design onto the sections? Yeah, exactly. I'll like cut all of them. And then uh, what I've been doing recently is working on these dry point plates that instead of using metal, I use plywood covered with a thin layer of vinyl spackle. Mm -hmm. And so I sometimes work in the spackle when it's still wet. What I'll do is I'll do one plate at a time, but then like I'll lay them out on the floor as I'm working on them. And so I can kind of connect some of the lines together. Um, I will admit over the years, this has been the one medium that has eluded me as to process <laughs> and i hear that from a lot of artists like, i already know like when i start talking about it i feel like i go off on a tangent and literally in my booth almost every single time it's like i'm two sentences in and the people just have this like glazed over look on their face like uh-huh 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 and i'm just like oh i lost them again <laughs> you didn't you didn't lose me here um but um i am just i just am acknowledging the fact that I've almost not asked questions about the process in the past for fear of just looking dumb. So if I ask dumb questions, no, not first at of all, all, not at all. But you are building a plate so that when it's finished and you can ink it, the ink settles into the grooves and the crevices, and then that is yes. like it gets yes, transferred onto the paper. Yeah. So instead of being a relief, well, here's the thing. Like, so sometimes for my colors and textures in the background, I will use woodblock to do relief print off of different types of um, like oak or luan to get that grain pattern in the background. Uh -huh. Like my most recent work, I'm mostly just doing dry point. And those are the spackle plates I was talking about. Uh, once I do all the scratching and sometimes once the, once the spackles dry, I'll use a Dremel and I'll use needlepoint and a fork and just any kind of sharp, you know, tool that I can use to get all the lines in there. You sound like a glass blower. We make tools out of just about <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah, and like some some of the tools I use for inking are ceramic tools. I don't think that there should be so many categories and and like putting people into these little pockets with artwork. It's like anything goes. You know, just use what you can to to make what you want to express. Yeah. And so, so once I do all get all the lines in the plate that I want, I seal those with um, a mixture of polyurethane and water. Uh, so, so there's a barrier, and I can clean the plates. But um, so I let the polyurethane dry, and then I take basically like a tiny squeegee that's a ceramic tool, and just like put ink into all of the little grooves that have been scratched away. Okay. So the ink goes down into the grooves and then I'll take a cheesecloth or a tarlatan and wipe off the excess ink that's on the surface. Mm -hmm. So I'm only, I'm only getting the ink. I only want the ink to be in the um, carved areas. And so once that is all cleaned up uh, as much of the plate tone I want is off, then I can, um, I take a piece of paper, soak it in water for about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So the fibers loosen up and then I'll take that out of the water, um, put it in between two towels and kind of like, get all the excess water off mm -hmm. and then put that on top of my plate and roll it through a press to get the impression. Mm -hmm. And now because the paper has been soaked, those fibers loosen up and they can go from the pressure of the press more into the inked areas and pull out all the ink. And then you get this three dimensionality, which is really cool about dry point and intaglio printing and etching that you don't get with 
pen and ink, for example. Like I always loved doing pen and ink when I was growing up. That was just like my thing. Like I love detail. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how you got your start. I mean, that's what you went yeah. into college and you were kind of in that direction. Most definitely. But I was, I was kind of like really obsessed with, you know, super detail. Any detailed work was like really impressed me back then. And, uh, and then printmaking just added this like life to that line that I never knew that, you know, was possible mm -hmm. before I started taking those classes. How so like the depth you can have different like thicknesses yeah. and amount of ink that that reservoir will hold sort of deal. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So like it literally is three dimensional when you look at a print, even if the lines are etching and they're like really shallow, there's still a little bit of ink popping up off the page. Whereas like with pen and ink, it's the ink gets more absorbed into the paper. So it's flat. When you make these plates, and you're able to create, you know, additions, you're able to make multiples from these plates. When you yeah. hold up a piece side by side after you've done another print, mm. are, are there subtle changes between them or are they mirror copies of each other? No, most definitely there's subtle changes in mm -hmm. between them because you're, it's not like you're pressing a button on a computer and it's printing out the same exact thing. Yes, mm -hmm. you're working from the same plate and you want to like if you were trying to do an exact edition, of course, the goal is to make them as similar as possible. Mm -hmm. But for me, I'm I'm really interested in in plate tone and playing around with that. And each piece is definitely like, you know, some parts are going to print a little bit darker. Some parts are going to print a little bit lighter. And I love that variation, you know, to have that variation within addition within. I'm actually not that interested in additioning per se, because for me, like on these large scale of works that I'm doing, yeah, I'm printing the same thing several times and putting together this piece several times, but because I'm carving it individually every mm -hmm. time I paste it down and I'm gilding it individually every time, it really makes, it even brings out those accents of like, this is definitely a one-of-a-kind piece mm -hmm. yeah. every time. Yeah, that that next element of the adding the highlights or the carvings, then yeah. it becomes its own original even. Even if the print is quite similar. Quite you know? similar, exactly. Yeah. It's a lot like with glass blowing too, you know, we we go to bl blow and create an exact, if somebody orders 10 pieces, they want them all to look the same, right, right. you know what I mean? You're going to look at it and to the artist, of course, we're like, well, no, it's different here, it's different here, it's different there. Maybe to the uh, the untrained eye, they look at it and they go, they no, can't it's the same, it. but yeah, they're, they're definitely, that is the, mm -hmm. the draw to handmade, one of a kind original type work, really. Of course, of course. And I try and explain that to people. Sometimes I'll even, you know, they come in my booth, they see a, a piece, like an unframed piece that's not one of these carved pieces, but it's printed, you know, with like wood block and dry point printing. And then they're like, oh, so like, where's the original? Mm -hmm. And that is a problem that printmakers have to explain over and over and over again, because people don't understand, you know, if you say print, it's like they, they automatically think it's like a reproduction and not an original thing. It is, that is a topic that, yeah, gets people really confused and really heated. And there are some printmakers I know out there who are tired of that. And and, and one good, good friend of mine, uh, Carol Swayze, actually got out of the printmaking business because that struggle to explain your work all the time was exhausting. Yeah, sometimes I listen to myself on, you know, I mean, I'm sure we all have this thing that we say in our booth, it's like, broken mm. record mode, you mm -hmm. know, people come in, they ask the same questions, and you're, uh, and then you, you know, okay, here I go again, you know, yeah, right. And sometimes I'm even like, 
Dylan, can you believe that I sound like I just said that for the first time? <laughs> I Even feel sorry I'm, for my neighbors. <laughs> one million times. <laughs> and it's like, I'm like, all right, just like, you know, whatever. I mean, I think you have to have a... um even selling anything at these shows, you know, it's like you have to be able to just be willing to do that because mm -hmm. it's part of it, you know, and just because you've explained yourself to one person doesn't mean the next person coming along knows has any idea what you're about and what your work is about. That's a good point. And, uh, we need to put that irritation aside or, the, or that, that struggle of the selling our work, the representing our work aside <laughs> so that we can, you know, because you're right, that person shouldn't pay the price for the hundred people who came in before and asked the same question. <laughs> right, right. We should just honestly, I mean, my personal opinion is we should just be happy that they're there, you know, right. and, and asking. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And asking and curious and just try and engage as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, to our individual work that we're making. Well, back to your, your pen and ink kind of start. I had heard or read about you that your first work as an artist or getting started in, in, in school, you were going in the direction of scientific illustration. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, I was, so I was I was young when I started college and I, I remember my um, high school art teacher, you know, I always like to do these like detailed drawings and they were like, you should go into scientific illustration. So of course, as like a 16 year old, you're like, they know what they're talking about. Right. I, that's what I should do. So, you know, I started college when I was like, you know, I don't know, a couple months after I turned 17 oh. and, and, and I was just like, well, I obviously need to sign up for scientific illustration because like somebody told me I was it. good at it yeah. <laughs> before somebody mentioned it to me. I had no idea, but I was just, but I did find it interesting because, you know, it's focused on nature and that's the thing that I am inspired by and that I like a lot. So, um, so it was cool. You know, we were drawing skulls and, and insects and all that. And, and I was into it and I learned all these, you know, cool techniques. Like, I mean, different pen and ink techniques and carbon dust and, you know, things that I probably wouldn't have necessarily focused on so much before. But then I also, um, at the same time, I was, uh, got introduced, I was taking sculpture classes and I was uh, introduced to printmaking actually from Dylan because we were in a sculpture class together and, and uh, we needed to photograph our work for slides for that class or something. And he was like, oh, the printmaking studio has like really cool lighting system or something. And I went up there with him and I'd never, never been in there before and had no idea what printmaking was, mm -hmm. you know, aside from making like potato stamps when I was a kid or something. <laughs> I really had no idea, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, I think the next semester I really wanted to take a figure drawing class and it was like all filled up by upperclassmen. And the only thing that was available, still available in my schedule, time slot or whatever was printmaking. And I was just like, oh, guess I'll take that. Like, it's kind of annoying. I really want to do figure drawing, but I guess I'll take printmaking. This will be the thing and, to um, pass the time to get me to what I really want to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I truly felt that. And then, and then, man, that first week I, I got so into it because I was like, I remember the professor just gave us this little like six by nine inch zinc plate and, and explained to us, okay, uh, you're going to put asphaltum on here, which is a resist. You just take this needle point and scratch out the resist where you want your image to be. And uh, I started doing this um, this drawing of bumblebees on oh, there, okay. and I got so into it. It was like for a week, I just like tried to like skip all my other classes so I could like focus on making this piece because I was just like, wait, you mean I can basically make a pen and ink drawing, and then I can make as many prints of it as I want, 
and I can keep one for myself and I could sell it. Like something about it. Just like, I was like, this all makes a lot of sense. The, like, heaven, the heavens opened up and you were like yeah. down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I was, I was. And I didn't care about anything else after that. I was like, what, what were those other classes I wanted to take? Right. Like, oh my God. Well, but th so this strong kind of like this start with nature and science is that, I mean, that seems kind of like it also is the source of, of what you like to, to represent in your body of work. I mean, yeah, it's also just what I like to do in life. So I think that that is what comes out because, you know, I live in the woods and I love to go walking in the woods and just see all the like subtle changes in nature. You know, when I'm out there, when you're in a place where you can spend like maybe an hour every single day, like being outside in that same place, you just start noticing all these like little nuances and things that you might not necessarily see otherwise. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff is really fascinating to me. So capturing some of that feeling and putting into my work is is what I try and do. Cool. So I had also read about you that you like to capture your work from a, a live setting. You don't like to take photos of the work and then create the artwork from the photo or am I am I misreading something? I think something? that was like more no no, I think that was more true. I have like several different artist statements on my website, but I think that was more true like when I did figure drawing. Uh, I never wanted to draw from like a photo of a person because it's just, you know, when you see something like in the round and you, I don't know, drawing something that is right in front of you is so much, I just feel like you can capture something that you can't when you are taking a photo and everything gets flattened out and you can't like look around and yeah. see what to do. I think that that was very true with my figure drawing and all my botanical work. Yeah. I do draw from life. Okay. Uh, so or like the majority of it every once in a while with like the bigger plants i may um take some sketches and then i also might like do a bunch of photographs and with the landscapes i do work a lot from you know like little cell phone shots and stuff uh -huh. to get me started and then i will um go back in and kind of i'll use the when i do use a photograph i'll use it just for like a real gestural start to the piece okay. and then i just kind of make the rest up from memory it becomes the skeleton and then yes yes and then the whole filling in of the detail is an evolution of your creation as you're as you're yeah. going yeah exactly i think like with the really up close detailed botanical work it's just so much easier when you have the actual thing in front of you to capture all those little little details the conversation we had in Sun Valley that really struck me was I think of when when Renee and I work with glass, it's such a reactive medium. You blow into it and it immediately starts to change. And the idea of where you wanted to go with it has to shift and we have to move with it. And so I I think of what we do as as like I always thought of it as being a that's a unique quality. But then you yeah. were describing your work and talking about how after you have pasted your papered prints onto the boards and then you start taking away the wood and, and carving into it to create your, your your piece that you describe that same process yeah well sometimes it's like you're you're working on plywood and plywood is every layer is like a new uh Discovery. Like treasure, like discovery. Yeah, it's like excavating. You know, you're kind of like, ooh, okay, this layer is like carving really nicely, and then you get down to the next layer. Sometimes you carve a little deeper, and you're like, there's just, it's just like there's like a piece of wood missing. You're like, how did I didn't even know that that was right? You know, a layer, a layer, like a pocket inside the wood, or or something that's like much harder to carve, and 
you kind of just have to go with it because you're like, oh, well, this huge print that I've already, you know, made the plates, made the prints, pasted this thing down, waited for like two months for the ink to dry sometimes because it's so thick, you know, it's on here. I need to make this work, you know? (laughs) That is a lot of pressure because the lead up to that point, it's like you can't just decide, okay, now it's garbage. You have to evolve with it and you have to make it work. Yeah. So, um, so sometimes if I start having problems with the, I mean, normally my strategy is that if the wood doesn't want to cooperate, I just carve deeper mm-hmm. and hopefully the next layer is going to be more forgiving. <laughs> and <laughs> normally that works on a few, <laughs> a few places. Sometimes I have to put wood filler and like wait for that to dry and then like carve that. And if it's going to be painted over or gilded over, it's like not a problem, you know, every once in a while. But, um, but yeah, you just kind of have to, I think, with making artwork with life in general, you just have to kind of go with the flow and like see it, uh, you know, what presents itself and then like react accordingly to each thing and sometimes mm-hmm. change what your original plan was, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes to make you, it work in the end. you get to where you think a dead end is. But if you obviously, if you end up stopping, then you've created a dead end. So you have the choice right. of evolving. And making yeah, that dead yeah. end work, you might need to take the day off or a couple of days off and say, where am I going yeah, with yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Sometimes I'm just like, okay, this is not what I plan to get done today. You know, <laughs> like Holy. I thought I would, you go in there and you're like, all right, to carve this sky is going to take me like, you know, a small one, maybe like three hours and then I'll do this and that. And then it's like, uh, and then something goes like totally the opposite of what you expected. And you're like, all right, and I'll be working on this third of this piece for the entire afternoon. Okay, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. or whatever. It's fine, you know. I mean, I think that's, I think that's part of it. And I, I like being in in a situation where things are always, you know, changing, and you don't always get exactly what you expected. Because I think that that would be boring. Absolutely, you know. I hear you. Totally. Yeah. That's interesting what you say about what interests you. It's almost like you're talking about a holistic life. Like part of what you like in your life is living in in the woods, walking through the woods. That becomes the source of your images of that you create in your artwork. And it makes me think about the title of the movie that you produced with Dylan, The Life We Make. I mean, am I am I picking up on kind of the kind of life you're trying to create for yourself or craft for yourself? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the thing is, you know, you never know, like when you start, I guess this goes back to what we were just saying. It's kind of like, I don't, you know, I think when I was younger, like sometimes you get people saying like, what is your five year goal? What is your 10 year goal? And mm-hmm. I'm just like, I have no idea, you know, like I'm just trying to see what's here in front of me and like react accordingly. Yeah. And I think when we used to live um, downtown Ann Arbor for like the first mm, eight and a half years, we were doing shows or even we started doing shows maybe a little bit before that. But, but I mean, that was easier to like uh, get models, you know, to come to the studio and draw and, and uh, you know, I was drawing a lot of the botanical things were like all things that I grew in my garden. And, you know, that was what was there at the time. And, and if you would have, asked me if I wanted to live out in the woods out in the country like you know when I was in my 
20s i would have been like you're crazy mm. you know i just i just that's something that old people do i'm not doing that mm -hmm. and actually now i realize that i'm here it's it's actually more i would say like you have to have energy to live in the woods because there's a lot of work to do like to you know manage the land and and uh and your surroundings it's not like in the city where everything is kind of like cut back and already pristinely managed you right. know i remember you but, saying um, in la quinta when we talked a couple of weeks ago you said yeah we really got to get home we've got to cut some wood we got to get ready for winter <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah oh my gosh our property has this like pipeline easement and and the last summer the um, gas line company came through and they cut down all these trees and i was like and they were just shredding them you know and i thought that is so much firewood what are they doing and so i just told them hey just like put all the trees you're going to cut down on the side of our property. Well, I looked away for like a minute and I, I thought, Oh, there's, you know, there's going to be like five or 10 trees. Mm -hmm. I looked and I was like, okay, they're stacking up these giant machines, putting everything there. And then I went, I don't know. I think I went to the studio or I was doing something else, not paying attention. I looked back over like a couple hours later and there was literally like the mountain of trees, not processed. That was like as high as a first story building. And like, I don't know, 30 or 40 feet wide. Like, right. I mean, it was massive. And I just thought, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? <laughs> you don't have a backhoe to go out there and uh, drag them away. You have to cut them no, with a chainsaw. No, 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 no. <laughs> yep. And, and Dylan and I went out there and I think we processed like a couple face cords of wood. And I was just like, this is just, this is a full-time job. And so we end up hiring this guy that we normally buy wood from to come. And it was ended up being about 30 face cords worth of wood. Holy mackerel. Which if you're not familiar with what a face cord is, no it's like four by, it's like, it's like one log deep by like four feet by eight feet. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. So it's, like, it's, it's years and years worth of wood for this. But our, we have a wood burning stove in the studio and in our house. So it's okay. awesome. But it's also like we, we still, we stacked some of it, but there's a lot that needs to get stacked. So so that's a project. That is a project. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I kind of think back to the conversation that Renee and I had when we were first dating and thinking about the kind of life that we wanted to create and, you know, being self-sufficient artists, making a living at it was that conversation. And we came off of the 80s, children of the 80s. Both of our our fathers worked for companies, you know, big companies that moved them up the line, had to manage teams of people. And you think that kind of a job is, you know, gets you set to retirement. And then when they got to be the age I am now, they found themselves unemployed. And Ugh. that left a huge kind of a effect on us because we thought Definitely. that's not the life that we, we don't want to put our energy and time in to the American dream, somebody else's business. Somebody else's, yeah, somebody else's thing. It's right. like, I want to do my own thing. Right. So for better or for worse, I think that's what gets a lot of us on the path to this life that we make. It, and we discover along the way, kind of like we discover our work, how we take evolutions with how things evolve and change. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in a real pickle and we just keep moving, you know, or we are really grateful and we look back and say, this has been a really great life. Yeah, no. And I, and I think, yes, I think that being an artist and, and getting to meet people and show your work is definitely a great life. And it's, and I don't think like when I was younger, uh, like, I mean, I guess like the time right, right around when I was going to graduate college and stuff, like I didn't really have any, like 
I guess, okay, when I very first started college, I was like, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon mm. and a scientific illustrator. Mm. And then like I got into college, I started taking classes and I was like, and I'm going to learn Japanese and I'm mm -hmm. going to learn, you know, and I'm going to travel to all these countries. And I mean, you know, of course you get distracted and you get like introduced to all these new things. And it's like, you can't really plan out what you're going to do. But, but there was always one thing where I was like, I'm always going to be an artist. And I really like after studying in college, it was like, didn't feel like there was any other true options for me. That mm -hmm. was just kind of like, that seemed like the only thing that I knew how to do and that I was like comfortable doing. And, and uh, yeah. And I'm glad that I found somebody else that is, you know, has a similar mm -hmm. vision as far as like the way they want to spend their time. And you know, with Dylan. Yeah, absolutely. Like Jay talked about in our my previous uh, interview, he talks about us all being rare birds. And when we do find that that person who gets not only who we are, kind of that drive of the kind of life we want to live, but then who can kind of like tolerate, you know, the instability behind it and can ride that roller coaster. You know, I think that's the thing that we all as artists, when we go to these shows and we all descend on a city for the weekend and we and we form these bonds and connections, it's like we are these people who, who, who you know, you can't like turn to our neighbor. Well, you can because you don't have neighbors, but um, you don't look next door to your neighbor and, and you don't find that in the in the little cul-de-sac some, some of us might live in or whatever. They don't get it. Yeah, I mean, we have neighbors that are a little bit, you know, Remote. it's spaced out, but yeah, yeah, it's not so far away. Our, you know, our one neighbor like got chickens and so we go over there and like buy some eggs from them sometimes. Our other neighbor has like totally different schedule than us and they're like, you know, one is a nurse and one works at Toyota or something. So like we don't have as, not that they're not nice people, but we For just sure. don't have as much in common with them, you know, so yeah, sometimes people that I have been good friends with in the past and then get into situations where like, it's so strange, you know, like with artists, I could like travel with any of the artists that do the show circuit. And it's like, if like, if plans change or things, whatever, all of us are just fine. We're like, okay, that's, yeah, that mm. happens. Okay, we go on with it. Like, you know, some other friends, it's like, that have, you know, more of like a set job where it's like, everything is the same and they do the same thing every day. And, and then you try and like go, uh, I've been in situations where I like try to like travel with people like that. And it's just like, you know, you don't realize when you just like go to a dinner, you know, and like hang out with people for like short amount of time, you can get along so nicely. But then like when it's like more time, mm -hmm. sometimes you're like, wow, this person just thinks so differently than me. And right. it's like so apparent in those, you know, longer stretches of time. We said we were going to do this on the itinerary. And that's what we're going to do. And that's do, what we're going to do, even if it's going to now make us miserable. At one point, it sounded like I'm, a great idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm like, no, no, we're going to change the plan now. Like, that's what we're going to do. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's. I think it's important to be flexible in life, and and you will have experiences that you didn't expect to have. You know, if you stay open minded. You said one of your interests was uh, Japan, and I know that you spent some time in Japan. Can you tell me a little about that? Uh, yeah, so my professor at art school at U of M, University of Michigan, uh, was is from Japan. Uh, his name's Takeshi Takahara. And so he, you know, I was introduced to his work, you know, maybe my second year of school. And, and uh, I remember originally I wanted to study abroad and and I was looking, I wanted to learn Spanish. I mean, I'd studied a little bit of Spanish in high school and, and I was like, oh, I'm going to... Um, 
So I'm going to go to a Spanish-speaking country. And I kept looking at all these programs that were like exchange programs with U of M. And all of them were like art history based. Mm. There wasn't a lot of like studio classes. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him about it because at the time, like I was already my third year. And uh, and he was like, oh, well, there's this there's this uh, program in Kyoto. And and uh, I think you would really like it. It's all, it's all printmaking studio based. Oh. And I was just at the time, I was like, I really hadn't thought about Asia at all like anything about Asia I was just kind of like that just seems so foreign to me uh -huh. but because he was like so encouraging and he was like yeah you know it's a, it's you know they've got a great program and everything and I think what you should do is uh, of course I'm still young you know at the time I was like 19 or something I, was like, I think what you should do is like take a crash course in Japanese they have one that's like 10 credits in 10 weeks for the summer and then you just like go there for a semester after that okay and I was just like okay yeah. So I said, you know, I got a scholarship to go for a semester and uh, I took that crash course in Japanese and, you know, got my basics down. And then, and then when I was supposed to go just for four months and after four months, I was just like, you know, I was getting just, it was just such an awesome experience. And also I had a friend who was also just graduated, who was from China and he was going to take a trip around China. And he had asked if Dylan and I wanted to go with him there for a month during that time I was there. And I was just like, I asked my teacher, you know, can I stay for the rest of the year? Like, is yeah. that be okay? And uh, he told me his reaction was like, you're so strange. No student has ever asked me that before. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really? And I was like, is, does that mean okay? Oh, you know? Right, and, right. And he, yeah, sure. Sure, as long as it's okay with your, you know, everybody's back home and uh, in the States. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, so I checked and made everything. My scholarship had run out, so I – um. So I did some like on the side, a little bit of like English teaching to yeah. little kids in the neighborhood where I live cool. to make some money. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, I was there, I got to travel, I got to travel around China for a month. I got to travel all around Japan, um, meet all these awesome other students from all over Asia. I was really like one of the only Western kids there. Mm -hmm. um, so one other um, student from U of M, uh, Sanango Akpem came with me and he was there for like a, for a semester. And then uh, he went back home because I think he was about to graduate. Mm -hmm. And then I was just there and and really more immersed at that time because it fo it, it forced me because there wasn't uh, there was also another kid for the first semester was from Australia. Um, and and then after they left, it was like I didn't have anybody else to speak English with anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> so I was like, OK, now you really have to like you know make it, it was more effort you know so uh in in like learning the language and and just being more immersed in everything and it was a really good experience and uh yeah did was there anything that kind of stuck with you with your art with with moving forward in life I think like definitely I definitely think like certain aesthetics and I also think just like living in another country for a year can and I don't even think this is like specific to Japan at all I think that just you just learn that the, I think the more you travel, the more you realize like not everybody thinks the same and not everybody approaches the same problems the same way. And it's easier to um, like get along with people and, and just like appreciate a different point of view sometimes mm -hmm. when, you, you know, instead of just being like, no, this is the way, like we were saying before, like this is the way this happens. Like, no, it's not like lots of, there's lots of different ways to get to the same end result. Kind of that, and I think that, that going with the flow kind of thing that, that would kind of kind of keep coming back too it's like that yeah yeah i mean i remember there i was there for working on my work and 
I was frustrated, like with this technique, you know, some technique stuff I didn't know, I didn't really understand. And, and the teacher was like not coming to talk to me at all. And I'd already been there for maybe a month. And I remember talking to this other, um, this <laughs> Korean student and, and she was once like, I was like telling her, I'm like little, I don't know, like, did I do something wrong? Like the teacher hasn't come to talk to me. And, uh, uh, professor hasn't come to talk to me and she was like have you talked to him and I was like no like mm-hmm. and she's like well that's not the way it works here like you need to go to the professor you know right they're not and gonna, I was thinking, they're I was, not going to come seek you yeah. out you that's the no. cultural thing yeah and I just didn't I was completely oblivious so you know um you know then I went and talked to him and then it was like after that we had like a great you know like rapport like, uh, rapport yes and and uh but it was it was definitely the beginning. It was just kind of like that's just you know it's like literally the opposite of what I was used to. I was used to being in these classes where the teacher would like come around, look what everybody's doing, comment on it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and that was I think that was just like the first thing that was like eye opening to me. Yeah, you know, cool. Well, to kind of um, wrap up and to transition into next episode, where Dylan has already sat down and talked with Will all about the film. I wanted to have the opportunity for you to talk a little bit about it. You, and pardon me if I step on the, my ignorance behind it, because I do know that you are the, a producer on the film, but you know you and Dylan are partners, so there is quite a partnership involved in the whole process of everything you guys do in life. So I don't mm-hmm. want to somehow like short in my description of of what I'm your involvement is. I mean, is it is this is it his project and you're kind of like participating in it, or is it you and Dylan's project? I think it's more his project. I mean, I love being part of it, but and it was the thing is we were um, you know, as we we're driving all over the country and doing all these shows and and there's really nowhere within the US that I won't drive to to do a show, Mm -hmm. you know, if I think it's, you know, has potential. So, um, so along the way, you know, there was, there were artists that we're close with and that we spend a lot of time with that we knew we were going to interview and um, would see anyway, but we got to know, you know, uh, and this is actually something I think is really cool about uh, this podcast and is that, you know, you, you kind of know a lot of artists, but you know, you only know some of them really well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing the show circuit and, and it kind of, it was, it gave us like an excuse to like ask certain people where it's like, Oh, can we come to your studio and like mm-hmm. give you an, or have an interview or like watch you do some work in the studio. And then like a lot of times we end up like, you know, sleeping over at their house and, you know, having dinner and maybe going to like some random event that they were doing and, and getting to, en- you know, enjoy, uh learning a little bit more about their lives and so i was you know just being there i guess i don't know like along for the ride i mean like i think there's a few interviews where i like i asked some questions mm-hmm. you know or uh I, I know the amy arnold one and anyway but or you know that i'm sitting there and i'm and i kind of interject and ask a few questions but i think like the overall vision was definitely you know more dylan's and i'm happy that i got to like you know be there to share part of that what I really enjoyed when you gave us all a sneak peek of it during the pandemic is that a lot of us have commented that this group that we know, these these other artists that we know, and we all kind of have these these similar ways of thinking about life and why we do what we do, 
And when we were at home from the pandemic and not seeing each other regularly, it got kind of lonely. Oh my and, God, that was like seriously one of the hardest parts about the pandemic for me. It's just like, mm-hmm. I think every, everything else would be okay. I'm like, okay, I'm away from everybody. I'm away from all this COVID. I'm like out in the middle of the country. Nothing can hurt me, you know? But then like when I would think about like not being able to see my fr- my artist friends for like however mm-hmm. long, like for an un- undefined amount of time, like that mm-hmm. just like, I don't know, man, that to just like was really was o- overwhelming for sure. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think Dylan's film and this podcast is an opportunity for us to hear our stories that are a little bit deeper. And obviously, we're not going to walk into somebody else's booth and say, hey, hey, tell me about experiences that really shaped your work. This is how we kind of get to know more about you, Helen. And and usually it's a one-on-one where nobody else gets to share in it. But I think that this is really a good opportunity, the film and this for us to continue to motivate like-minded other people Each like other. us. Yeah. To keep this industry going. Oh, for and sure. For sure. I mean, the inspiration. Yeah, I agree. And um, gosh, I mean, to that note, it makes me think about like how we need to get some more younger artists doing the show circuit, you know? Definitely. Um, and I've thought that too. And I, when I joined the NAIA, it, we kind of need to, to step into the next the next generation. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think I remember when I was in college, there was only there was one like one hour um, class, I guess, or like special mm-hmm. class where an artist who had done the Ann Arbor Art Fair came and like talked to all of us about like the possibility of like doing the student section or like what you would need to do to like get your stuff together um, to do that. And it was and it was kind of like. I don't, you know, I mean, I feel like it could be like a whole semester long class, like, you know, Mm -hmm. all of the things that you could learn to go into making a living as an artist this specific way versus in art school and maybe like the other things that seem possible to make a living, which would be like graphic design and and, uh, scientific illustration and industrial design, you know. Which get all the options on the table. Yes and, yes. and this this option, like Dylan talked about last week, it never really seemed like a legitimate or a, a valued option. It kind of seemed like a, you know what I mean, something that that instructors might look down upon. Thankfully, my instructor um, was and is a roadshow artist, so we did learn a, a bit about that which oh, that's I, awesome. I'm grateful for I I remember like but that isn't the norm no I remember setting up I think it was like maybe my last semester of art school and setting up a, a scab booth at the Ann Arbor Art Fair and and being like just <laughs> terrified that like one of my professors would like come and see me there you know and then it was so funny because right. like to me at the time it didn't occur to me that like they hate the art fair so much that like there's no way they would ever come to it in the first place like why was I even scared of that <laughs> You know, like <laughs> because they like, wanted to come police it and and, yeah, and chase any care. of their students or shame them. <laughs> they don't care, man. But you know what? I I had I think I had a little bit of a different experience because I grew up in Ann Arbor, and so I grew up like going to the art fair as a little kid all the time. You know, every year, and uh-huh. I thought it was super cool. And I was always like, man, one day, like maybe I can have my own booth at the art fair. And so it was always this thing that was kind of like in my head. I like, I didn't know how many other art fairs or other shows that were all over the country that I could do, but it was always like a goal to be able to do this one at least once. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, 
And then like when Dylan and I were graduating art school and, and we were like, well, why don't we just like do this for a summer? Like we could just like, you know, yeah. like travel, like when, I don't know, we have to like, I, we found out that there were some other shows like relatively close by and we're like, well, we could do that. And then, and then it was like, Hey, wait a minute. Like, cause we didn't know what we were going to do for jobs, you know, like full-time jobs after we graduated. We're like, maybe we could just keep doing this. Like it seems to right. be, you know, working. And I mean, and that was a time where I was like, you know, had my little student etchings that I was selling for like $45. And I thought, mm -hmm. I thought, Oh man, people are buying a lot of these at $45. Like maybe I should raise the price to $65 and see what happens, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and We've all had those, those, uh, those first conversations when we start making money that we think is really good money. And then we yeah. look back on it now and we're like, well, it was a start. <laughs> yeah, but it was a start and it was enough to like engage us and, and make us realize like, Hey, there's something here. And then I remember being, it was either Flint Art Institute um, show or Greek Town, and we were set up next to this older artist. His name was Phil Dimmer, I think, and he did these abstract paintings. And I was just kind of like looking at his booth setup because everything we had was relatively small, you know. And he had like some small stuff and some medium stuff, and they had like one giant piece on the back wall. And uh, and it was like I had never, you know, I never made a piece that was like the size of the whole back wall. I just thought like, wow, that's crazy. And then. You know he laid some knowledge on us he was just like yeah you want to have like something for every group of person that might come in you know like right. smaller stuff helps sell the bigger stuff you know and and uh and it was just kind of like oh okay that you was know, like the just, first the first yeah, mentor that kind of laid out how it works and yeah it was interesting because i mean there wasn't there wasn't another person you know like telling us like in school for example like this is what you need to do abc right. you know like um, but yeah, so, so that was, that was interesting. I don't know. That was, that was good. I'm glad he was there in that moment, that random show that like, you know, that we thought was such a big deal at the time. And, and, uh, and it's all stepping stones. Like for all these younger artists, it's like, you don't need to like try and do like the top tier shows right when you start, like sometimes mm -hmm. doing the smaller local shows, uh, to where you live are like, you know, that's like a good place to learn and also like, you know, not have to put as much, um, you know, money towards uh, investment towards, you know, to like learn, you know, and work out what you're trying to do and then, you know, take that to the next level and start doing the like A and B shows versus the C shows or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is definitely the opportunity where we are learning from each other, just having these conversations. And they're like, oh, you know, I could do it this way, because there's lots of different ways that you could maneuver a career out of this roadshow business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's OK to like have, you know, I, I do think it's hard to like if you have another job and you're trying to do the art fairs, you know, and doing both of those, it seems like hold hard to hold on to doing two different things at the same time for very long like when i first started for sure yeah. sorry i'm like a little bit of tangent but no but it's for sure for sure what you're saying on that oh. yeah what i was gonna say is like when i first graduated and i didn't know like even how i would pay a booth fee i had donated a few pieces to the performance network in ann arbor because they were having a fundraiser and then i went to this fundraiser and uh normally like now i don't like it when people ask me like will you donate a piece it's like i'd rather just donate money to a place like i don't yeah. mm -hmm. you know i don't like to give away my work you know but but anyway back to this i was i'm there and they're having this function and my sister who is a photographer at the time 
um, came with me and we were like looking at all the people around and we're like, oh, we don't really know anybody here. Let's like go sit in that back corner of this restaurant where the fundraiser was. And uh, I sat down next to this woman who was a, um, an artist totally randomly. And then her husband owned this company called the Orthopedic Network News. And I had made my little business card. I was like, okay, I'm graduating. I need to like see how I yeah. can get a job. I need to have a business card, you know? And my mm -hmm. business card said, you know, fine art, scientific illustration, printmaking. So I, I hand him the card and because uh, we were just talking, what do you do, this and that. He said, uh, can you draw a hip implant? I was like, I can draw anything, you know, <laughs> right. it doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> and um, so anyway, like the next on the next Monday, I like went for an interview and got a job uh, specializing actually in drawing spinal implants for three years. Um, okay. And I, so I did that alongside doing art fairs, you know, just to make money to pay my booths, uh, booth fees and and also have money to like go to a residency out in California for a little while when I didn't do shows for like seven months. There's a bit of juggling, you know, in the beginning of this that mm -hmm, you yeah. sometimes have to be willing to do to to get to where you're um, to your goal. Mm -hmm. But it's worth it to where there's you know? a revenue stream at yes. some point, you know, yeah. um, definitely. I, I worked in hospitality for years, uh, fine dining restaurants and uh, ultimately was managing one of them. And I remember to saying to my general manager, okay, well, I'm going to go. My um, shifts were managing the weekend dining room. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trade my dining room shifts where I will do the weekday ones for this, this other manager. And I'm going to go, I'm going to do the shows. I'm going to drive home on Sunday night. I'm going to be there Monday morning and I'm going to manage the, the nights from like Monday through Thursday. And then I'm going to go do another one. He looked at me and he goes, are you kidding me? He goes, have you ever gone on a vacation and like, <laughs> you're like driven, what's that word mean? <laughs> and you've like driven home and then you're like ready just to like work a shift, you know, and, and you're going to do this regularly. He's like, this isn't going to work. And I'm like, you're right. It isn't going to work. And I, the next day I come back and I submit my, my two weeks notice. Oh, yeah. And he was thinking he was talking me out, out of, of doing, doing the art business. You're like, no, 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 that's the end goal here, buddy. You know, <laughs> he was completely shocked. They thought I was dabbling in this, but nope, that was like, you're right. You inspired me to quit this job. <laughs> hey man, sometimes, and I was so nervous when I had to quit. I just thought, okay, I'm, you know, this like steady, like job that I know how much money I can make from it. And, and, uh, but I mean, the shows had started being good enough that I didn't think I needed it. And I remember just like having a cell phone and like having my, the guy I worked for his number and I was like about to press, you know, like to call him. And then, you know, my heart's racing. I'm like, ah, you know, all awkward. And then, you know, I started talking to him and said, Hey, you know, I've got these two projects, like working for you and like doing these shows and making my own work. And I just don't have time to do both of them. Like there's no way I can for sure put my all into it anymore. And he was like, he was so kind. He was just like, you know, I knew this would happen eventually. And I'm just in this business to make lifelong friends. And like, Aww. I'm, you know, I'm happy for you, you know, that you, you know, are making this work. And I was just kind of like, so much relief, no you know, kidding. And but, look, at um, that's what we are in the business of doing, making lifelong friends, making our work and yes. forming these connections. So yeah, yeah. The, that was a real good transition into. It really it, was. It really was. And just, yeah, the man, the friendships and, and the art, the artist community and family, it's just, uh, 
I don't know, it's something really special. I don't really know exactly how to put it into words, but I feel really strongly about it and appreciate it so much and uh, really glad to be part of it. Thanks for sharing your story today. This has been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Definitely good talking to you, too. All right. All right. Thanks, Helen. Bye-bye. Yep. See ya. Great talk with Helen there, Douglas. I thought it made a really nice bookend with my conversation with the Dylan. And, you know, you talked to her and she got a little embarrassed, but it was so deserved, those, those awards that she's won. Because, you know, a lot of us went into COVID and became kind of crippled in the studio and yeah. we couldn't create. And what I saw those guys doing, Dylan and Helen, were... Like they just explored and they yeah. got better and they got more interesting and they got more passionate. And so it's nice to see that rewarded. And I, you know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes you see people win the awards and you're like, oh man, you know, it's like, uh, they're just, they're doing this thing and they won the award. It's like when you see one of those guys, certain people, like when you yeah. see Helen win the award, you're like, oh, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, the, <laughs> you know, there's, the, there's the ability and the passion and the, everything about that is just, yeah. it's, well, I, I, it just kind of came to me in the moment when we were talking to ask her about stepping outside of herself and asking, why do you think this is happening? Why do you think you're getting recognized? What's different? And I loved her answer talking about, you know, combining techniques and integrating different things and not kind of staying in a narrow lane. And it was it really the, the piece is the focal point for her and then the different techniques on how to get there. It was just really cool to hear how she's incorporating different things and different techniques yeah. in her work. So anyway, that There's was good. There's nothing contrived about it at all. It's just it, you can feel the passion and the, and the love of the work. And Will, can you imagine putting over two months into a piece and then starting to carve into it with a Dremel and be like, okay, this is where I'm going with it <laughs> and have it not going the way you want? Oh my God! Yeah, that, you know what? It, it's it's cool with this this podcast too because it has um, there were elements of what she was talking about that reminded me of Jay McDougal. Your mm-hmm. talk with Jay, mm-hmm. or he was talking about letting the the wood dictate uh, the way the end piece comes when he starts carving into the wood, and it was similar with these the the layers of the plywood and yeah, um, and the way the the leaf was going to attach, and it, it was a great talk. Yeah, and. The other thing that I hit the stop recording button and Helen and I were just having a little chat as we ended our conversation and she dropped a little kind of bit of gold that I wanted to share here. We had this conversation, you know, about the life we make and this would be a good kind of a lead into next week because the second half of your interview with Dylan is all about the film that, that they worked on together and the life that we make is why we're all in this business. And the thing that she said was, for any of us roadshow artists, being in a traditional job where we show up every day and do the same thing every day for the rest of our lives seems like a terrifying thought. And yet we go to our neighbors and we talk to somebody who we live down the street from. And for them, the instability of knowing when our next big sale is going to come, if it's going to come this weekend or whatever, that's terrifying to them. So we all choose the life that we make. Definitely. We choose the life that we're comfortable with. I've talked to a number of different artists over the past few months that have had to get jobs during COVID and just hats off to them for, you know, just doing what they have to do to keep whatever wheels on that they they do. And I I want to talk to some switching gears kind of thing. 
yeah, switching gears and, and there's a certain comfort in, you know, we've all had jobs. I used to work at a frame shop and I loved the guys that I worked with and I made some really close friends there. And sometimes I miss the the absolute shut off that it takes, mm. you know, when you walk away from a job at five o'clock and you're just like, I don't have to think about that. At all. Like there's no anxiety to it at all. You're just, you know, putting in the numbers. Right. So, um, uh, sometimes there's a, there's a benefit to that too. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, whatever it takes to keep you going is what you have to do. And that's what I, I like about this business, you know? Yeah. Well, a uh, little bit of business about next week. Uh, we have the uh, second half of your talk with Dylan about the film, but we're going to dedicate the whole preamble next week. We invited a, a guest, uh, Ben Fry is going to be joining us, the uh, chair of the NAIA, and he's going to talk with the two of us about the results of the survey that was taken, and we're going to kind of unpack what we think it all means, the three of us. So we're going to nerd fun. out on some numbers. Nerd that'll out be on interesting. numbers, yeah. So, with Ben, that'll be fun. That'll be... Uh, It'll be a challenge to keep him uh, uh, in that preamble uh, 20 to 30-minute goal. I, he likes to talk. He, and he lights up when he starts talking about he those does. facts and figures and the Google charts. And <laughs> He's one of my favorite people. I can't wait to talk to him. Yeah. So anyway, and one other quick little bit of business. We want to send out a thank you to a friend of the podcast, Samantha Freeman, for your contribution to the pod. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much. That, that's great. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you to all the others who have chimed in and, and lended a a word of encouragement at the shows that we've been to or send us a private message. We appreciate all of those things. Catch you next time, guys. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, check out Will's website at willarmstrongart.com and my website at sigwithglass.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. 